You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. gentlemen. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm glad to see all of you here. I'm Mark Stout, the uh, historian here. It's great to see such a, such a good turnout. Um, I'm pleased today to introduce Mr. Richard Miniter, a best-selling author, investigative journalist, and a terrorism expert who uh, writes a column for Forbes.com and uh, also a weekly newspaper column on politics. Uh, Richard has also been published in a wide variety of uh, newspapers and uh, magazines, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you may have heard of these, the Wall Street Journal, New Republic, National Review, and a a raft of others, actually. Uh, uh, Aside from his columns and his articles, two of Richard's uh, books, I believe his last two books, have uh, been uh, top ten New York Times bestsellers. Uh, This include uh, Losing Bin Laden and Shadow War, the untold story of how America is winning the war on terror. Today, however, we're here to hear, here to hear about his latest book, Mastermind, The Many Faces of 9-11 Mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Unlike Osama bin Laden, of course, uh, and Ayman al-Zawahiri and Saif al-Adil, Abu Musab al-Suri, and so many other senior members of the al-Qaeda movement, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM as I think we'll be hearing him described today, uh, did not leave behind an extensive record of videos or writings, so really a lot remains unknown about him to those of us who are outside the government and outside the intelligence community. So this then uh, is our first real look at the man who planned the 9-11 attacks. Uh, It's a timely book, and I'm sure much to the delight of Richard and his publisher. Uh, With the recent killing of Osama bin Laden, terrorist manhunts are very much on our minds, and Richard, I think, uh, can give us at least some insights into how KSM was tracked down and captured. Uh, on a personal note, let me add that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the man who uh, himself beheaded uh, Danny Pearl, the Wall Street Journal reporter. Uh, Danny was a year ahead of me at Stanford, and I never knew him there, but we had mutual friends. Uh, so I took uh, you know, a double pleasure, if you will, in, in reading Richard's account of how KSM was, was captured. Um, also, of course, the waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed has been very much in the news uh, again, uh, amid suggestions that this enhanced interrogation technique may have led KSM to say things that helped uh, lead to bin Laden. So I, I think uh, Richard may comment on some of, uh, some of, some of this matters, these matters. So it's a fascinating book. I know we're in for a fascinating talk. Uh, before we get started, um, I think Richard will talk for about half an hour, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. 
Uh, at this point, it would be a great time to silence your cell phones. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Minitor. Well, thank all of you for coming. It's, um, I'm actually glad to see all of you, and I'll tell you why. Uh, writing is a very solitary endeavor. I mean, you spend about the only time you get outside of staring at your computer screen is interviewing someone in some dark and dusty place. And then books go out on their own, uh, like lost children. You don't uh, actually get to see what readers think after they've read the book, uh, or at least not very often. And um, you know, sometimes uh, you only hear from the people who are upset. So uh, hopefully you're not upset, and uh, I'm delighted you're here. So I always have envied both the stand-up comics and the actors. You know, they, they get to get the immediate response from the audience after their performance, and they don't even have to write their own lines. Um, well, when you're being hunted by American men 18 to 25 years old, it's almost inevitable that you're going to get a nickname, if not several nicknames. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed very quickly became known inside the Special Forces community and inside the broader intelligence community as KSM. So that's how I'm going to refer to him by his, uh, his U.S. government nickname, if you will. Um, but KSM also had another nickname inside Al-Qaeda. And because this story is so good, I'll tell it to you right up front. That nickname was KFC. And he got the name KFC because he ate buckets and buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken or Kentucky Fried Chicken knockoffs in Pakistan. He's about a five foot four man. He weighed about 140 pounds in college. But after 9-11, when he was in Karachi and other Pakistani cities, chowing down on KFC, he bloomed up to over 200 pounds. He had this Jabba the Hutt-like girth. And this led to a lot of teasing inside Al-Qaeda. They called him KFC, and he didn't like it. So when Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl was kidnapped by a man named Omar Sheikh, um, he bought, KSM arranged for that man to sell the captive, Daniel Pearl, to him. This is not as unusual as it sounds. Captives are sometimes bought and sold among, inside uh, the terror network. And he brought a film crew to the home where Daniel Pearl was held. And once the camera was up on the tripod running, he leaped onto the right shoulder of Daniel Pearl and began sawing away at his neck. Now I'm going to spare you the grisly details. It took about 11 minutes for Daniel Pearl, my former Wall Street Journal colleague, to die. But why did he do it? He did it because he hated the nickname KFC, in part. He wanted to show that even though he was fat, even though he was now in a senior leadership position, he could not only send people to kill and to die, but he could kill himself. He, made, he, he killed Daniel Pearl, not because anything Daniel Pearl said or wrote or even thought. He did it to change and affect his reputation inside Al-Qaeda. And that gives us a small window into the man. And I hope to open a few other windows as I, as I talk uh, briefly today. Now, inside Al-Qaeda, it's, it's not as monolithic as you might imagine. I, I wrote the book Mastermind to really answer three questions. I mean, the old saying that you, you write a book when you want to spend a couple of years studying something, when you want to teach yourself something. So there are three questions as the war on terror sort of waged on that dogged me at the back of my mind. And these were the questions. One, how does an educated, successful person, someone educated in American or Western universities, become a remorseless killer of our society and of his own. 
What's that pattern of transformation? What are the choices that person makes to become a terrorist? How does that happen? Secondly, I wanted to know, how does Al-Qaeda function on the inside? What, what, what is it like to work for Al-Qaeda? What are the internal dynamics? And third, what techniques in the war on terror work and don't work? And that obviously leads us into the territory of interrogation, rendition, and what some people call torture. So th those are the three things I'm going to talk to you about briefly today. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is born in Kuwait in a city called Fahil. It's on the coast. His father came there in 1950. And it, it was never a very important, it was a village, and um, it became important in the 1950s briefly because of oil production. It attracted a lot of British and Australian and some American engineers, and it became a boom town. But before the coming of the Western engineers, it was a small coastal village where men dived bare-chested for pearls, sold seafood. It was a, an Arab seaside town. But with the oil boom, it started attracting immigrants from across the Muslim world. And the call of, of wealth, or possible wealth, uh, from Fahil reached the mountains of Baluchistan, which is a region you won't find on many maps. But it's a, it's a country that no longer exists, but it, it goes into three different countries. It's a, it's a people that sprawls over three countries, Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And these people without a country migrated for money. Some of them were soldiers of fortune, but others were like his father, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's father. They came looking to make money, to make a new life. But his father comes and very quickly uh, is a merchant, a peddler, and becomes an imam, preaching a very radical version of Islam, which is more or less at this time unknown to the Baluch people, of which he was one. He encounters this this ideology in Kuwait, most likely through Saudi sources, what people loosely call Wahhabism, um, which more properly is known as, you know, the, the Salafis of Salafism. And this radical form of Islam in the 1950s and 1960s is immensely appealing in that section of Kuwait for two reasons. One, most of the residents there are not Kuwaitis, native Kuwaitis. They're displaced peoples. They're predominantly Palestinians, and the Palestinians have much of the lower professional jobs, school teachers, uh, police officers, things like that. Uh, and then the other displaced peoples, Bangladeshis uh, from, the, uh, from the war between India and Pakistan, um, Pakistanis looking for money, uh, people from the Far East, Muslim, predominantly Muslims, all who were able to come into Kuwait without a visa. But very shortly in his life, he, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is about four years old at the time, his father dies. And I searched for the death records. Apparently his father died in 1969. And the Kuwaitis simply didn't keep records of resident foreigners, births, deaths, marriages. It just wasn't interesting to them. So we have this account of his father's death, but it's very sparse. There's really no official transcripts to back it up. His father dies and there's no welfare state there's no organized charity uh, in, in Kuwait for foreigners at the time. So his mother takes the job of washing the bodies of the dead, female bodies of the dead, and preparing them for burial. It's a very low status, low income job, 
but it enables her to eke out a living. At the time, she has nine children. Khalid Sheikh is the fourth male. Years pass on, and Khalid Sheikh is doing very well at school. He's a good student, somewhat bookish boy. And the family decides that not, they can't, they don't have any money at all. That they need to back one son to get an education. And that one son, this is typical in Arab families of this period of time, would support the rest of them. And that son is Khalid Sheikh. And they sent, they, ultimately he applies to a school in North Carolina named Chowan, uh, now it's called Chowan University, at the time it was Chowan College, an historically Baptist school in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. And either the family has saved some money, or more likely, the Muslim Brotherhood of Kuwait has agreed to sponsor him. He had joined the Muslim Brotherhood after his two, two of his older brothers had joined at age 16. So he arrives in America at roughly 18 years old, and he's unprepared for what he sees. I interviewed the man who picked him up at the airport uh, outside of Virginia Beach, who drove him to Murfreesboro. And what he remembers, this is years later, but the memory that he remembers is Khalid Sheikh being surprised by what he saw. Firstly, he's surprised by the geography, the, the intense greenery. When you see trees in Kuwait, they're usually behind walls and they're privately owned. Here, there were just trees everywhere. But more surprising and more strange and more off-putting than the trees were the people and what they were doing. They were sitting in lawn chairs on their front lawn, visible from the road. They were grilling out, playing with their kids, taking a hose to the bushes outside the front window. But what surprised him was so much of American family life happening in public. And this is not the kind of thing that would happen in the Arab world. And the more time he spent in North Carolina, the more he was persuaded that Americans were really backward. They, they did things that should be private in public. They trusted each other very quickly. And they didn't go out at night. After dark is when most social occasions would happen in Kuwait and many Arab countries. But in the United States, in, in Murfreesboro at the time, 1983-84, Murfreesboro had one pizza parlor, no bars. That pizza parlor closed at 9 o'clock. The town was asleep. So far from the night being alive and social and friendly, it was as silent as the tomb. It was the day when Americans were busy. So he, he became more and more alienated by America because it wasn't an Arab country. Now these are you know, very small observations. These, are, these things by themselves do not make him a terrorist, but it does set him at odds with the country. There's nothing that Chuan did, other than make him attend chapel service, that made him part of its larger community. And in fact, one of the things I learned in writing Mastermind was there's really nothing our civilian colleges do to integrate foreign students, to explain this country to them. We take it for granted that everyone knows these things. When the FBI searched the car of the 9-11 hijackers left behind at Dulles Airport, they found a small spiral-bound notebook. And in very careful Arabic script, there was a description explaining the differences between shampoo, conditioner, and body wash. We think we're easily understood, but from another culture, another time, 
yeah, it's, we're puzzling. Maybe an explanation is order, in order for foreign students. So naturally, KSM spent most of his time in college with not just other Arab students, but other Kuwaiti Arab students. He didn't even mix with the non-Kuwaiti Arabs. After a semester, Chawani transfers to North Carolina A&T, Jesse Jackson's alma mater. Here he studies engineering, but again, his social network is very limited to about 15 or 20 people, all of whom are Muslim, all of whom are Kuwaiti Arab, some of whom transferred with him from Chawan. But he emerges as someone on, who's known on campus as a mullah. Now, technically, he's not a mullah, but what they mean by that is he's an enforcer. He, he makes sure that the other students in his group do not violate these very small, very obscure tenets of Islamic law, or what they believe to be Islamic law. So for example, uh, you know, the, the cuff of your pants can never cover your ankle. It is forbidden ever to wear shorts because they expose the knee and so on. So even when they would go to the gym and work out, they would be fully covered. Enforcing all these differences kept them apart from the American college campus. I met a number of people, almost a dozen in fact, who went to college with KSM who remember him. And by the way, they mostly remember him fondly. He was a comedian. He was a member of an, infor an informal student troupe known as the Friday Tonight Show, where he'd put on plays and skits and uh, very successfully and apparently very humorously imitate various Arab leaders. But his audience was those other 20 Kuwaiti uh, Arab students. He didn't, I couldn't find anyone who wasn't a Kuwaiti Arab, who wasn't Muslim, who knew him well on, on, in school. His lab partner uh, just remembers him as a person who had very broken English. His professors remember him being very good in math and science, but never had a single substantive conversation with him about anything that didn't involve molecules and formulas. So he was in North Carolina for almost four years, but he came into contact with Americans on a very glancing basis. It's as if you are changing planes in a strange city and you walk through the airport. Have you met the people of, say, Cincinnati? Not really. You've passed by them. That's what he did in basically four years. He self-isolated himself, and he policed the borders, the perimeter, the social perimeter, to limit contact with Americans. But sometimes events intervened. And one of the things I learned, which was a surprise to me, was that he had a criminal record in the United States. I'm surprised that other investigators, even the government, didn't turn this up. But he liked to drive at high speed with an expired driver's license. And he would sort of roar through the streets of uh, Greensboro and uh, other parts of North Carolina. Maybe he saw too much of the Dukes of Hazard. I don't know. And, but he would occasionally crash. One day, two women are talking in a parked car, some urgent confidence that couldn't go on in their living room, I imagine, when their car is smashed by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Their injuries are so severe, they sue him. I found a copy of the lawsuit. Their, uh, their last name, by the way, is Christian. The lawsuit is Christian v. Mohammed. <laughs> Ultimately, they win uh, the case. Uh, he is uh, they are awarded more than $10,000 in 1985, um, which is a substantial sum of money at the time. So their injuries were fairly severe. He never pays. Uh, he dodges the sheriff. He flouts the law. But I talked to their, the Christian women's attorney, Stephen J. Teague, uh, 
And he remembers KSM bursting into his office with a translator and a small posse of other Arab students to lecture him about the Iran-Iraq war and why America's wrong about Israel. Israel turns out to be a very important point in his radicalization, more, than, more so than I would have thought. When you look at most al-Qaeda communications, they very rarely mention Israel. It just is not a core concern of al-Qaeda's. But it was a core concern of KSM's, probably because his social group in Kuwait was predominantly Palestinian, and his initial indoctrination into radical Islam is through the Palestinian message. Sometimes when he talked to Arab reporters, he claimed that his mother or his grandmother were Palestinian. This is a flat-out lie. His, his, uh, his mother is from uh, the mountains of Iran and is Balu ethnic Baluch, and his grandmother is most likely the same. Uh, Ramzi Youssef, his cousin, who was, um, sorry, his nephew, who uh, is later the, behind the, the February 1993 plot to blow up the World Trade Center towers, uh, also claimed in an interview with an Arab paper that his, his uh, grandmother this time was Palestinian, but again, not true. So they feel this kinship with the Palestinian cause, and yet they keep encountering Americans who are not Jewish, who admire Israel as the sole democracy in the Middle East, as a, a place where lots of different types of people, including Muslims, get uh, human rights and the rule of law. And even truck drivers and, and uh, bus tour operators were able to tell KSM and some of his classmates that there are eight Arab Muslim elected members of the Israeli Knesset. Um, that's a statistic that just rolls off the tongue, apparently. And it was recalled by one of KSM's classmates that, you know, how often they heard this, that there are Arab Muslims elected to Israel, Israel's parliament, how many Jews are elected to Saudi Arabia's? And this really bothered him. On a return visit to Kuwait, he went to see his old high school principal. And his principal recalls the conversation that he, he now hates America. And he hates America because of their support, our support, for Israel and that it's irreducible that every American that he's encountered, and remember, he hasn't encountered all that many, is pro-Israel. And that, that's something that astonishes him, that shocks him. When KSM, and this is a critical turning point, encounters another point of view, he's not intrigued by it. He doesn't seek to debate it. He's angry at the existence of an alternative point of view. It's ultimately a totalitarian mindset but it also shows how ill-equipped he is for the intellectual debate necessary for high scholarship. It allows you to succeed in science because most scientific questions, unless you get into particle physics, which is really a branch of metaphysics in my view, uh, there is one answer that's right. But in politics, in literature, in the so-called humane sciences, there's not one answer that's right, or certainly not one answer that's right that we, we all know and universally accept. Uh, and so he never tries to debate. When, I went, when he was at the chapel service in Chowan, I talked to the dean who was in charge of making sure that the students attended chapel. And I, also, I asked him and I also asked the classmates, you know, there was room for discussion in these chapel services. It wasn't a, a religious uh, service at all. It was usually an academic lecture on some, some aspect of Christianity. Sometimes it was just music. I said, well, did he ever debate? This is the son of an imam quite learned in the Quran, or at least that's how he presented himself. Did he ever debate 
anything that he was being taught. Because remember, although Moses and Jesus appear in the Quran, they appear in very different forms than they do in the Christian and Jewish holy books. Uh, the account of Moses that the Christians and the Jews have is, is virtually identical. The differences are really based on language and translation. Whereas the account of Moses, for example, in the Quran is completely different. And so you would think someone trained in the Quran would, would debate. Are they right about Moses, uh, for example, or some of the other prophets? Jesus figures more in the Quran than any other prophet. And again, the Christian account of Jesus and the Muslim one is very different. You would think that he would engage in debate, or any of his classmates would, uh, Kuwaiti Arab classmates. But none of them did. This lack of intellectual curiosity is just fascinating. But the intolerance for another point of view is something that the schools, North Carolina A&T and Chihuahua, did nothing to remove that aspect of his personality. And this leads to a turning point. In 1986, shortly before KSM graduates with a degree in, in, um, chem, uh, in chemical engineering, I believe, uh, from North Carolina A&T, a man comes to speak, a former rabbi, now a member of the Israeli Knesset, uh, named Meyer Kahan. Now, Kahan is notorious or famous, depending on your point of view, for uh, founding the Jewish Defense League. And he has a very hard line on Palestinian Arabs. He thinks that the Palestinian Arabs should go home, as he calls it. They should leave Gaza and the West Bank, go to Syria, Jordan, Egypt, wherever they like. But the land, what he calls the land between the two rivers, the sea and the Jordan River, should be the land of the Jews. And everyone else, or at least the Muslims, should leave. KSM does not think he's wrong. He thinks he's evil. Meyer Kahan has a view that's exactly opposite of KSM's. KSM thinks all the Jews should leave. They should either die or go to Europe. And he's almost indifferent as to which of the two choices they take. But the point is they should leave. So matter meets antimatter in Greensboro, North Carolina. And what's interesting is that there's a single footnote in the 9-11 Commission report referring to a CIA interrogation memo in which KSM says, that his first assassination in America was that of Meyer Kahan. The rest of the footnote says that the CIA briefer does not believe him. Made me immediately curious. And so I began investigating. And there are a lot of links between the 1990 assassination, four years after his speech in Greensboro, of Meyer Kahan in New York City, and KSM. Let's go through a couple brief ones. The man who drove the getaway car for the Meyer Kahan murder is the same man who drove the getaway car for the World Trade Center bombers in 1993. The man in the room of the Marriott East New York Hotel with a video camera who was supposed to videotape the moment of glory, the two shots to the body uh, of um, Meyer Kahan, that man uh, is also uh, involved and, in fact, on the bomb-laden truck uh, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and so on. There are about four to five different people who are involved in both the, the Kahan assassination and uh, the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. That, that cell that bombed the World Trade Center is run by Ramzi Youssef, the nephew and best friend of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, 
And the mastermind of that attack is, in fact, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed himself. In the in dusty records of the Justice Department, they find a single wire transfer, which they don't pursue, for, and I'll explain in a moment why, from Khalid Sheikh in Doha, transferring money to the World Trade Center bombers in 1993. Now, why don't they pursue it? After the explosion, which kills seven people, seven if you count the unborn son of Monica Smith, one of the secretaries who died in the World Trade Center bombing. When you sort through the, when the, when the FBI sorted through the rubble, they ultimately found a, a, a piece of a truck with a vehicle identification number that led to the bombers. But in the course of that investigation, which they codenamed Trade Bomb, by the way, they had very strict orders, apparently from the Clinton White House, not to investigate any overseas leads. So the connection to KSM was never explored, never fully explored by FBI, uh, the lead FBI investigator on the trade bomb case, James Fox. Uh, and that's something that irritated the investigators at the time because they saw lots of foreign connections. Instead, the bombing was portrayed as a random group of people who spontaneously came together for reasons perhaps of insanity um, uh, to carry out the first major foreign terrorist bombing in the United States. And it ends there. Years later, as the investigation deepened, they find other connections. The man who killed Meyer Kahan, uh, El Sayed Nasser, one of the demands of the World Trade Center bombers is his release from Sing Sing. In fact, that's their first demand. That surely can't be a coincidence. And how are these men connected? By the, the so-called blind sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman, uh, who is now in prison, but at the time was uh, teaching at the Mosque of Peace in New Jersey, just across the river from the World Trade Center. So Khalid Sheikh Mohammed sets in motion, I believe, the Maya Khan assassination. And then he travels to briefly to Kuwait and then to Afghanistan to join his older brothers. His two of his older brothers, uh, Araf is the one he looked up most, most to, uh, have now joined um, the extended community that is supporting the Arab port of the jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Let me pause and explain for a moment here. Um, the CIA and the US government supported uh, seven different Afghan factions who were fighting the Soviets. The Arab factions, Bin Laden was one of the leaders of, of one of the smaller Arab factions. The Arab factions were never funded by the US government. They were never funded by the CIA. They were in fact funded mostly out of Saudi Arabia and a collection of other donations from Gulf Arab states. They had a different goal. The Afghans just wanted their country back. The Saudi-backed uh, Mujahideen wanted to create an Islamic state in Afghanistan. So these two groups didn't work together. They had a common goal in that they liked to kill Soviets, although the Arabs didn't like to kill them very much. There are very few uh, reliable accounts of Arabs fighting Soviets. They spent a lot of time fighting each other. Uh, one of the things I realized is the car bomb, before it existed, uh, there was something called the camel bomb where they'd uh, load camels with explosives and allow them to detonate against rival uh, Arab factions in Afghanistan. So into this mix plunges KSM. And he goes to see 
the founder of, of what later become the Al-Qaeda training camps, uh, on a hilltop overlooking the Jalouze refugee camp in Pakistan. And from that hilltop, you can see into the mountains of Afghanistan. It's about 40 miles away. And through him, he meets a number of people. He meets Abdullah Azam, who is the mentor of Osama bin Laden. He probably meets bin Laden, although bin Laden later denies that that was their first meeting. And he begins developing a web of social connections to finance terrorism, and he sees the beginning of a terrorism career. The World Trade Center bombing is a challenge put out by a 1991 fatwa, uh, flagged up by Israeli intelligence, by the way. U.S. intelligence said, well, there are lots of these fatwas. It doesn't take it seriously. But the challenge is there. Uh, to bomb uh, the World Trade Center, which at the time they believe is literally the center of the world's trade. You know, they sort of imagine the world as an Arab city with a market. You take out the market, trade stops. Um, the idea that the name simply might be a marketing gimmick by the New York Port Authority just never occurred to them. And um, so KSM and his, and his nephew, Ramzi Yusuf, immediately become famous in jihadi circles for carrying out this attack, which for various logistical and other reasons was considered impossible. And now he has a choice. He can join al-Qaeda, one of the major terror organizations, or he could set out on his own as a terrorist entrepreneur. And interestingly, he does. He, he has his own network of funders. He plans and carry out, carries out his own attacks. And so in 1994, we find him in the Philippines, uh, plotting to blow up 11 airliners simultaneously over the Pacific. And as I detail in Mastermind, he plots to kill both the Pope and President Clinton in separate attacks. He later makes another attempt on the Pope's life in 1998. The Pope is a both the Pope and the President of the United States remain ongoing targets for KSM and, frankly, for Al-Qaeda. So... These attacks fail, basically, as the Philippine police stumble onto a burning uh, bomb um, parts in the, in the kitchen sink of an apartment building in the Malate district of Manila, and he has to flee. Some of his cell members are captured, and ultimately, Ramzi Yusuf is captured in 1995 in Islamabad in Pakistan. By the way, the idea that bin, bin Laden is killed in Pakistan is not strange, when you consider that two-thirds of all senior al-Qaeda operatives killed or captured any, anywhere in the world, two-thirds of them were captured or killed in Pakistan. That's more than Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So to, to a certain extent, we could think of al-Qaeda as predominantly a Pakistani organization, and certainly in its location, in its use of safe houses, secure communications, and as a place to coordinate fundraising and training Pakistan has long been their base. But by 1996, early 1997, Khalid Sheikh has run out of money. His best friend, uh, Ramzi Yusuf, his nephew, three years younger, they grew up together. Um, one day in high school, they shimmy up the, well, Khalid Sheikh gets the idea of ripping down the Kuwaiti flag from the front of the school, and he gets his cousin to shimmy up the flagpole and rip it down. Uh, if they were caught, by the way, they both would have been expelled, ending any financial future for their family as educated men. But they took the risk anyway, which I think is also revealing. But with Ramsey gone and most of his cell arrested or killed, uh, 
and he's, uh, he's running out of options. He goes to Brazil, he goes to Central Asia, he goes to Iran, he goes to Sudan, looking for a source of funds and new recruits for new operations. He's married, his first child is on the way, and he's broke. And ultimately, whether his wife tells him this or not, he realizes he needs to get a job. Now comes another critical choice. Does he leave the life, this sort of exciting rock star life? You know, Ramsey Yusuf, his um, nephew, had a business card made that said Ramsey Yusuf on it, and underneath, international terrorist. I mean, these guys love the high life. Uh, they, you know, they loved hanging out in high-priced hotels in Manila and Karachi and other places in the world, um, you know, renting hookers, uh, going to strip clubs, uh, having cocktails, listening to loud music, uh, all of which, even the music, is forbidden by any strict interpretation of Islamic law. Um, they love the life. And so the idea that he might leave it, even though he could get a very decent job as a chemical engineer in, in the Middle East, fairly easily, especially based on his extensive connections in Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf, uh, with government, not just with government officials, but with, in fact, the rulers of some of those countries. But apparently he never even considers going straight. Reluctantly, he talks to his friend Mohammed Atef and gets a meeting with bin Laden. Now, he and bin Laden do not get along. They have very different personalities. KSM is kind of like the independent movie producer. Lots of ideas, some of them bold and exciting, but he needs money and he needs men to carry them off. And bin Laden has a reservoir of people ready to die for, for the cause. But he also has lots of technical facilities, just like a, a Hollywood uh, studio chieftain would. He's got people who make uh, forge uh, passports and create legends uh, through false identities. He's got uh, safe houses. He's got couriers for moving money. Um, he's got a, uh, enormous amounts of money to fund an operation and a technical team to support that operation so that it's most likely to succeed. And he's got a well-established propaganda arm to let the world know that he's done it. So they certainly see the utility in each other. Bin Laden is sort of a venture capitalist. There's no major attack that al-Qaeda carries out in its entire history that was solely or even mainly the idea of Osama bin Laden. He funds other ideas. He approves and funds other people's ideas. He doesn't tend to originate them himself. KSM is full of ideas. But does he have the discipline to work inside an organization? Initially, he says, no, forget it. If you want to give me some money to do what I do, that's great. He wants to be the entrepreneur. Over the course of the next year, in 1997, he becomes increasingly financially desperate. The CIA has tracked him the year before, 1996, to Doha because of a fight between the CIA and the FBI legat in Rome, of all places. They decide, the U.S. government decides to go through the formal process of extraditing him from, um, from his apartment in Doha, which, by the way, is supplied by the Minister of Religious Instruction at the time. Later, he becomes the Interior Minister. Interior is what they, the euphemism for intelligence. So here he is supported on the government payroll, and the CIA warns the FBI, look, if we do this officially through open documents, 
KSM will be told and he will flee. The government cannot be seen to do this openly. However, they are prepared to let us just snatch him in the middle of the night. And the FBI says, that wouldn't be legal. How would we put him on trial? How would we explain how he came into our custody? And who shall, who shall arrest him? So we see the beginnings in the fight to capture KSM in 1996, the beginnings of this law enforcement versus warfare debate about the war on terror, the debate which continues to this day. Well, they take the law enforcement approach and KSM gets away. If they had taken the other approach, 9-11 most likely would not have happened. KSM would have been in custody and all of his plots after 1996 simply wouldn't have happened. The 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, which killed 224 people. The attack on the USS Cole, which kills or injures 44 people. The 9-11 attacks, which kill nearly 3,000 people in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington. Uh, the Bali bombing, which kills 202 people, and so on. None of these attacks would have happened. But would it have been legal? So, Ultimately, he joins Al-Qaeda. And it's like an entrepreneur joining a Fortune 500 company. And he doesn't like it. And Bin Laden doesn't make it easy for him. Bin Laden's decision-making process is very different from KSM's. KSM is very impulsive. He makes quick decisions. And if he makes a mistake, he thinks, I'll just go back and fix it. I'll make another decision. You know, Osama Bin Laden likes to brood. He would think, according to detainees, he'd think for three or four days just about the code name for an operation. A code name that will be only known inside Al-Qaeda, but he'll spend days and days thinking about it. Bin Laden is terrified of making a mistake. And he likes bureaucracy, he likes process. He has a Shura Council, which is sort of like a board of directors, except that it, even if it's unanimously against Bin Laden, it can't overrule him. It's not the way Shura Councils work. Um, but he likes to, everyone to have their input, he likes to take his time, and he's afraid of making a mistake. So temperamentally, they're very different. But somehow, these two people begin to work together on what is one of the most complicated, and sadly, one of the most effective terrorist strikes in the history of the world, the 9-11 attacks. And from the beginning, it's a managerial nightmare for KSM. One of the so-called pilots on 9-11, a guy named Zayed al-Jara from Lebanon, he was, a, he was born Christian, converts to Islam. He's studying in Germany and falls in love with a non-Muslim German girl. And, you know, the, um, it's a matter of public record. Their love letters are a matter of public record. They're deeply in love with each other. Zayed al-Jara either knows or has reason to suspect that in a few months he's going to die. And he, whether he's told his girlfriend everything he knows, we don't know. She was interviewed extensively by the Bundeskriminalamt, the German um, version of the FBI. But we do know that in July 2001, she persuades him to break all security and get on a, a, take a one-way ticket um, to Dusseldorf. And there she meets him at the airport, and he disappears into her apartment for several days. Al-Qaeda panics. He has all of the operational secrets for 9-11. They're in the final stages of the attack. Do they still go forward? What is he, is he going to spill the beans? Ultimately, they send, uh, I believe it was Ramsey bin al-Sheib, 
the man who desperately wanted to be the 20th hijacker, who now lives, uh, I think, at Camp 7 in Guantanamo. And Ramsey's job is to talk Zayed al-Jara into leaving the woman he loves, going back to the United States, and dying for Islam. We don't know what he says, but somehow he does it. This is just one of a number. There are 13 different moments in the 9-11 plot uh, in which the plot could have been stopped. Mohammed Atta stopped by a Maryland state trooper for speeding is another one. And all these turning points are driving KSM crazy. And at each time in which he wants to stop the operation or reconfigure the operation, bin Laden, even though he hates to make a mistake, once he's made a decision, he hates to reconsider it. And so the plot lumbers onward. And there's a detailed account of it, Master, but I won't bore you with all the details. But it's the internal mechanics of Al-Qaeda is what makes 9-11 possible. Even KSM was ready to pull the plug at different, uh, at different points. After uh, the 9-11 attacks, Al-Qaeda initially thinks the U.S. will be afraid to strike and then ultimately scatters into Pakistan, where many of them are later killed or captured. And at this point, KSM is promoted to head of military operations. His, his friend and contact, Mohammed Atef, is killed by a Predator drone in November 2001. And he, he stages a series of daring attacks, which I detail in the book. And then in March 2003, and I reveal the story of how we found him, uh, which is a, in turns a very funny and very strange story. Uh, involving cell phones, text messages, and a, a crazy character who had dinner with KSM but couldn't remember the man's address and had to wander around through the night at uh, Rawalpindi, Pakistan. But eventually he's captured. He's captured in the home of a prominent microbiologist, a famous uh, figure in Pakistani society. And the wife of the man who, whose uh, home um, KSM is captured in is the leader the local leader of the largest political party in Pakistan. This is like capturing the Unabomber in Beverly Hills in the home of two movie stars, right? But of course, Pakistan has no connection, surely a coincidence. After he's captured, he disappears from view. It's very hard to get an account of what happens between March 2003 and September 2006. KSM disappears into a series of essentially CIA-run secret prisons in Thailand, Romania, and uh, outside of Zemani Airport near Warsaw, Poland. One of the reasons why we don't know is that uh, Attorney General Eric Holder is continuing to prosecute uh, KSM's CIA interrogators. And men under criminal indictment or subject to criminal investigation, oddly enough, don't like to talk to writers and reporters and put things on the public record. Um, and so there are very limited accounts of this period. But we do know certain things for a fact based on government documents that have been released. One is that KSM was waterboarded in March 2003. That half of all Al-Qaeda uh, captures talk without any course of measures at all. The other half are sort of put on a staircase of increasingly severe measures. But these measures aren't all that severe. Uh, one is uh, the belly slap. Now, you need to get written permission from Langley, the CIA headquarters, 
24 hours in advance before you slap the detainee in the belly. There is a, uh, a very specific description of how you have to form your hand, the gap between your fingers, and then you can slap him once in the belly to get him to talk. If that doesn't work and you decide that you'd like to slap him again in the belly, you can fill out a form, send it to Langley, wait 24 hours, and you might be able to slap him a second time in the belly as long as your fingers are properly spread. Um, obviously, this is a very bureaucratic process. Uh, there is a physician, a board-certified physician, in the room at all times, as is a translator and several other observers. The interrogators are rarely, if ever, alone with their subject. Now, you've seen reported in the New York Times that KSM was waterboarded 183 times. That is technically true, but very, very misleading. What it really means is that he, water was poured on his face 183 times, but there weren't 183 separate sessions of waterboarding. Okay, waterboarding is the top of the staircase, the 12th and most severe. Um, the waterboarding has been extensively studied. Uh, tens of thousands of U.S. servicemen have been waterboarded in uh, escaping evasion school and other military schools, and there's been a lot of medical examinations. There is no peer-reviewed study anywhere in the world that shows that the American style of waterboarding leads to any permanent or irreversible physical or mental problem. None at all. And the, the list of subjects is, you know, between 20 and 30,000. They've never been able to find any serious mental, medical, mental or physical problem with the result of waterboarding. But KSM knew the rules. He knew that they could only pour the water for a maximum of 40 seconds. So as they're pouring the water, he would stick his hand out and count off the seconds, mocking his interrogators. One of the problems with publicly announcing what the limits are is that your enemies know and game the system. But ultimately, KSM breaks. Maybe he breaks out of boredom. Maybe he, he breaks because he doesn't like having a towel over his face and water poured on it. But he does break. Now, a lot of people will say, well, when you're being waterboarded, you'll say anything to make it stop. That might be true, but it's a useless observation because when you're being waterboarded, you're not being asked any questions that the interrogators don't already know the answers to. They're asking you questions they do know the answers to because they're testing your veracity, your willingness to offer the truth. Once you begin to cooperate, you move out of what is strictly speaking interrogation into what's called debriefing. There you meet a totally different set of characters, not the people who've waterboarded you. And I should also remind you that the people who do the waterboarding have been waterboarded themselves. They've received extensive training, upwards of 200 hours of it, but they've been in, in part of that training, they have been waterboarded themselves. So they know exactly what the subject is going through because they've done it themselves. So KSM breaks and he begins to talk. Now when he offers up information and questioning, that information is checked and cross-checked. They simply don't write down everything he says and take it as gospel. Why would they? Good information is rewarded. He'll have access to his favorite foods. He'll get an extra pillow and so on. Bad information is punished. Your favorite foods go away. 
maybe the air conditioning in the room becomes a little cool. Very quickly, people, prisoners realize the parameters. Cooperation is rewarded. Lack of cooperation is punished. Do I think that KSM was tortured? Having looked through hundreds of pages of government documents that have been released by the CIA, both the Inspector General's report, which is fairly critical, and the legal memos put out by the Justice Department, I would say no. Because torture, in the classical definition, is a permanent, irreversible change in well-being, such as gouging out an eye, amputating a healthy limb, ripping out a tooth without anesthesia. There are countries that do this for information. We are not one of them. Those countries, in fact, do torture. But we do not permanently and irreversibly affect someone's well-being, mental or physical. We simply put a subject into the period of stress so that he can cooperate and provide life-saving information. The kinder you are to your subject, the harsher you are to the innocent American who might simply just be picking up her child from school or going to the grocery store for some food. You never know when the terrorist bomb will go off. You never know when the, the machine gun carrying man will burst into the crowded bus. So the harder, the nicer you are to the detainee, it's a trade-off. The harder you are on the innocent person who might know nothing of politics, just living, living an ordinary life. Now, if you go too far toward harsh treatment, you also eliminate the possibility of the subject's cooperation. That, too, is a balance. I can talk more about this in questioning. But ultimately, and I'll end with this, let's look at some of the benefits We've heard a lot about the costs. Americans don't do that. This is very unsightly and so on. Let's look at some of the benefits of the interrogation of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Plots to blow up the um, U.S. Embassy in Paris were stopped. Plots to blow up the U.S. Embassy in Bamako, that's the capital of Mali, were stopped. Plots to kill the U.S. Ambassador to Singapore and to blow up the embassy there, as well as to attack the Australian and Israeli embassies in, in that same city, were stopped. 44 people were arrested in that particular case. Plots to sink the U.S. warships off the coast of, uh, off the Straits of Gibraltar were stopped. Plots to blow up the Empire State Building, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Chicago Sears Tower, the Seattle Space Needle, the Library Tower in downtown Los Angeles, and so on. Plots to blow up a series of gas stations in Baltimore, all stopped, based on interrogating and debriefing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. How many of these plots would you have liked to see succeed by giving up the waterboarding option? How many? How many people do you want to trade so that we don't waterboard someone who's devoted his life to terrorism? Thank you very much. Oh, sorry about that. The microphone, yeah. You, you, uh, you said that you deal in questions with the issue is uh, going too far can be uh, counterproductive. Uh, one of the talking heads on MSNBC interviewed several in people described as interrogators who said that the uh, waterboarding has a counterproductive effect of causing somebody to hate America, which intuitively sounded absurd to me in the case of a KSM, uh, that you could increase the hatred for America in any way. But uh, would you comment upon that? How did, I, I'm, I'm interested to know, how does an interrogator take this position that 
interrogation using waterboarding is counterproductive. Uh, how does one get quote-unquote interrogators to say that? that that's a great I, question. It, it just First of all, uh, the, the MSNBC interviews that I've seen with interrogators are all U.S. Army interrogators. Uh, so they were not um, interrogating high-value uh, al-Qaeda targets like KSM. That was initially done as part of a CIA program. And uh, now uh, KSM and the other high-value targets are in the custody of the U.S. Navy. So the Army interrogators are particularly looking at low-level Taliban figures in Afghanistan or in Iraq. But your view of interrogation from inside the bureaucracy is, is splintered along agency lines. The FBI and law enforcement folks think about making a case. And, you know, lawyers have written themselves a complex set of rules over the last couple hundred years, especially since the 1960s. Uh, so, and they're very cautious about these rules. Uh, rules of evidence, uh, chains of custody, and so on. And these are the kinds of things that obsess the FBI. Uh, and if you're going to prosecute using the civilian courts, terrorists, they're absolutely right. You know, evidence needs to be maintained, and interrogations must be conducted in such a way as to avoid um, uh, tampering with, essentially spoiling the evidence or, or, or ruining the case. Uh, there are some military, predominantly army people, who believe that the field interrogations they were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq should be the model. Again, they're not interrogating the same hardened cases. And this is sort of the, the Senator John McCain view, that we should follow the 1940 um, U.S. Army Field Manual. That's great, except that the field manual uh, makes, has a certain limitations. For example, you can never shout at a detainee. You can't make uh, false threats. You can't play good cop, bad cop. Now, those are all forbidden in the 1940 manual. So if you get arrested uh, and you're suspected of, oh, I don't know, uh, graffiti, you can be interrogated by your local police using all of these techniques. And somehow, our Constitution uh, maintains itself. Our society continues. The dark night of fascism does not descend. But if you question members of the Taliban or al-Qaeda, and you play good cop, bad cop, you've just violated the U.S. Army Field Manual of 1940, and you've done a very bad thing, and the Constitution is going to come tumbling down. I mean, it's a ridiculous position. But it's based on where, where the people stand on this issue is about where they sit in the bureaucracy. Now, the CIA people are mostly interested in stopping future attacks. Uh, and they don't, they're not really concerned how they get there. They think that there's a certain amount of life-saving information inside the heads of the detainees, and their job is to get it out. It may well be that their measures are counterproductive, but it doesn't appear to be so based on the number, the, the cautiousness of this process. Um, you know, step number seven, I told you about the belly slap. Step number seven is walling, where they take a detainee into a room and they throw him against a false wall, which collapses back about six inches, making a very loud noise. Uh, you need written permission in advance for that, and there's a doctor in the room, and so on. Uh, but that is another one of these techniques designed to elicit cooperation. Only three people have ever been waterboarded. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is one of them. Uh, but remember, their code, their manual, which was captured in Afghanistan in 2002, requires them to hold out, and it's a matter of personal honor, which is not a small thing in the Arab world, to hold out as long as possible. So if you don't do something sufficiently severe as to compel cooperation, they have not met the tests of their honor and can't 
cooperate. So it's an interactive process. I'm, you know, I'm not in favor of torture per se, but, and I don't think what we do, or what the US government does, is torture. But you need to create stress in the subject in order to extract that life-saving information. And if you don't create enough stress and you don't get the information and people die, how do you explain to the families who lost somebody just because they got on a bus or went to the mall at the wrong time? Well, we could have found out about that plot, but we might have had to pour some water on his face. We might have had to keep him incommunicado in an in a, in a air-conditioned room for hours, maybe days. And what's the explanation to that family? It's a trade-off. You're weighing the two. You can't... Uh, critics imagine that they live in a world of infinite means, that they can... Uh, that you can have the most humane and gentle treatment possible. And by the way, the, if you look at the, the CIA reports on this, which are now public, and you look at the elaborate bureaucratic precautions, I think no reasonable person would find that these measures are harsh. But even if you do believe they're harsh, you must be honest enough and adult enough to say there is a trade-off. If we don't do these things, there's information that we will not get and people will suffer. So the question becomes, how many innocent civilians do you want to die in order to prevent waterboarding? We've got time for one more question, and I will uh, remind you that after the talk, Richard will be in the back Yeah, hi. Um, I think you had mentioned at least um, briefly that there were several other times where they, KSM got away where they were trying to catch him. I was wondering if you could go into the detail there, and especially if you can go into some more detail about how specifically how he was captured at the end. I mean, was it the Pakistanis or the, the CIA, or how, how did that come about? Uh, the tip to capture KSM came through the CIA. The CIA's largest station in the world is in Islamabad, Pakistan. Uh, and, you know, they are fishing where the fish are, and that's where most major al-Qaeda figures have been killed or captured. Um, KSM is captured in that famous capture photo of his hair askew and uh, the nightshirt and the sort of hairy-chested uh, photo. Uh, he was woken up sleeping on a floor, on the, I believe on the, second, the spare bedroom on the second floor of a house, uh, 18, I think it's 18A Nissan Road um, in Rawalpindi. That is a joint operation. The Pakistanis were involved, but the intelligence originated with the CIA um, through, partly through a walk-in. Now, I mean, anyone who's been to the spy museum knows that most of the time, you know, walk-ins are not trusted by embassy personnel or CIA personnel because there's all sorts of reasons for walk-ins. Um, sometimes it's a foreign service just trying to test uh, the agency's procedures or to discover who is the intelligence officer in that uh, delegation. Uh, and sometimes it's people offering false information for money. But this particular walk-in announced that he was going to be seeing KSM for dinner later that night, um, which is very unusual. Walk-ins never, almost never, say that they have information that they'll have in a few hours. They usually try to stretch it out for months, get a few payments out of the CIA if possible. Uh, so he was given a secure cell phone number to call. Uh, at the restaurant in Rawalpindi, he sends a text, which is, I think, hilarious. I am with KSM, you know. And, um, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a message between two high school girls. 
And hours later, he calls the number and announces that uh, he'd just gotten out of the car that dropped off KSM. So he's picked up by a CIA official, a case officer, and they drive around the expensive neighborhoods of Rawalpindi trying to find the house. He doesn't know the number or the name of the road. So they're looking in the dark, trying to see a building that he recognizes. And they drive around in circles uh, for a large chunk of the night. And the CIA officer is thinking to himself, what a wild goose chase. And then suddenly, at about 2 in the morning, he said, that's it. That's the house. And ultimately, with uh, uh, both a CIA paramilitary team, other members um, on loan from the embassy, and uh, Pakistani police, they raid the house. There's more details in my book, Mastermind. Okay, on that, let's all thank Richard for Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.